Good evening, Chodesh Tov. Um, I don't want to say anything about my special relationship uh, with Shandy particularly, but this evening I do remember very keenly the special love I had for her, and later also for her father. And with this I want to move into our subject for the evening, which is, has to do with the last months of the life of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moses' last months. Can you hear me well? No. no. <laughs> Is there anyone? A little closer to your mouth. Just very close. So, my subject this evening. Is that better? Yes. Uh, my subject this evening has to do with Sefer Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, which essentially consists of the farewell speeches of Moses to his people in the last months of his life. It's not the total content of the book, but it's a large part of the book. And the book begins, as you remember, Elah Dvarim Asher Diber Moshe. These are the words that Moses spoke to the children of Israel in the plains of Moab. And what I want to talk about this evening is Moses and language. Moses and a lifetime of avoiding language. Moses and a final period in which he spoke so much. That's the way the Midrash puts it. You are the man, well, look at, let's have a look at the Midrash together to start with. It's, uh, it's actually the last source on your page. You can move to the end of your source page, number eight. Moshe. These are the words that Moses spoke. Israel said to Moses, just yesterday you said, I'm not a man of words. Well, it was 40 years ago, but yesterday. You, I'm not a man of words. And now you've got so much to say. That is, the Midrash wants to connect the beginning and the end of Moses' life through the theme of Dvarim, of language. That Moses' first and perhaps only really important statement that he ever made about himself is Lo Ish Dvarim Anochi. In general, Moses was not interested in describing his interesting personality. That was not his business. But what he did say very forcefully to God when God first commissioned him for his lifelong mission at the burning bush, what he did say to God with absolute conviction was, Lo ish devarim anochi. I'm not a man of words. Send anyone you want so long as it's not me. Shlachna biyad tishlach. That's how the, the period at the burning bush ends. After a long period, according to the Midrash, seven days, he stands and argues with God and says to him, I am not for this job. Kvad peh, kvad lashon, heavy of mouth, heavy of tongue, aral svatayim, of uncircumcised lips. And this man who basically over and over again refuses the commission, and with whom God in the end has to negotiate, and it's a rather unhappy negotiation, who exactly will be doing the talking here. At the end of his life, we have a whole book that is basically devoted, more or less, to the last words of Moses. 
And it's generally agreed, even among the most traditional commentaries on the book of Deuteronomy, that this last book has a slightly different status from all the previous books. That while in the previous books Moses was always telling the people the words of God, in this last book, in some sense, these are his words. That the words he speaks, they are God's words, but they are in some sense his words. And the Midrash now, that Midrash that I'm just looking at with you, at the end of the page, wants to take that electric connection between the beginning and the end of Moses' life as if we're talking about something deeply personal about Moses. It's not just Moses conveying, repeating certain laws and conveying some new turns on, on laws. That it has, there is something personal about this explosion of language at the end of Moses' life. What the Midrash continues to do is to tell us about Moses' protests to God at the beginning in a different way from the one that we usually, we usually think of. I'll paraphrase loosely, you can, you can follow in, in, your, in your sources. Moses basically says to God, you are doing me an injustice. You are putting me in an impossible position. I'm not a man of words. That means, and here is the surprise, I'm not a man of words means you're asking me to go to Pharaoh and to speak to Pharaoh. In Pharaoh's palace, people come from all the nations of the world, from all over the world. And they speak all the languages of the world, 70 languages. And you are sending me to come from you to convey a message. And I can't even speak 70 languages. As if speaking 70 languages is a kind of minimal requirement for coming to speak in the name of God. Now, 70 languages, symbolically, implies being able to speak in every possible symbolic gestalt, in every possible structure, so that anyone in the world can understand you. Wherever they come from, whatever culture they come from, that you will have direct access to them. And Moses here protests when he says, I'm not a man of words, according to this Midrashic understanding. It's not that he has a stammer. That's not the, simple, that's not the whole story. If he has a stammer, that's a physical symptom of a deep inner sense that he is not a man of language. And here the Midrash takes a very sophisticated view of what it is to be a man of language. It would mean to be able to speak so you can make people listen to you. And so when God says, they will listen to your voice at the burning bush, Moses answers really quite provocatively. He answers, no, they won't listen to my voice. He knows he hasn't got the power to make them listen to him. And it turns out at first as if Moses is vindicated. Because uh, when he does go to, to speak to, to Bnei Israel, they did not listen to Moses out of that is because they are too dispirited to listen they don't have the, the, the spiritual and the intellectual attention to, to listen to good news for whatever reason Moses is confirmed I don't have the power to make people listen to me so our Midrash now comes and says it's not just a general incapacity to communicate in order to communicate you need to speak 70 languages. Now, there is a Kabbalistic you know, underplay behind all this. But I think the main idea one can pick up, 
What does God answer Moses, his protest, in this Midrash? God says to Moses, he asks him, Adam, the first human being in the world, who taught him 70 languages? And obviously he did know 70 languages. There was no teacher to teach him, and yet he knew 70 languages. It's obvious, isn't it? He names the animals Shemot. doesn't say shame, one name per animal. He, na- he names them multiple names. Each animal, a lion is not just a lion, right? A lion has the names that apply to lions in all different cultures and languages and nationalities all throughout the world. Who taught Adam this? And that is really a rhetorical question. The assumption is, of course, that no one taught him. But somehow he drew it up from his own, what can I say, from his own knowing nothing. He came into the world not knowing anything, as it were, and at the same time knowing everything. And out of that nothingness there came language, the fullness of language. And God is saying to Moses, on some level here, don't turn to me. Don't look at me to teach you. Somehow, at some point, you are going to have to find the 70 languages within yourself. The last part of the Midrash I'd like to read with you, because it is so beautiful. Um, The last part, the mouth that said, I'm not a man of words, in the end said, these are the words that Moses spoke. And the prophet cried out, the prophet Isaiah cried out and said, then, at the end of days, the, the uh, lame, the halt, shall leap like a hind, and the tongue of the mute shall sing aloud. Why? Because there will break forth water courses in the desert, and rivers, streams, in dry land. These are the words that Moses spoke. Now, what we have here is a poetic and not simple account, it's not transparent, of what it means to become a person of language. It's like water breaking out in the dry land. Where is water important if not in a dry land? Water in a watery land, you pay no attention to. But water that you suddenly see breaking out from the sands, that gives you a sense of the true origin of water. This is where water, of course, must come from. It must come from that opposite place. If Moses is to find a way of speaking, then he must find that way of speaking out of his muteness. In the end, the mute shall sing aloud. It's the mute who will sing aloud. And what I want to do with you this evening is to come back down to earth and to look at Moses and the end of his life and the particular kind of language that he discovers at the end of his life which allows him for the first time, I would say, to communicate in a powerful way with the people. What I'm interested in mostly of all the speeches that Moses makes in in the book of Deuteronomy uh, is the great most personal speech the speech that is really hard to account for in which Moses records to the people he reports to the people how he prayed to God to let him cross over into the promised land 
At that time, he says to, he says to the people, he reports to the people, at that time, at what time, doesn't specify, I beseeched God, saying, I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 3. Lord God, this, I didn't put the, uh, the whole source on your page, but you can follow, I think. I beseeched God at that time, Lord God, this is what I said to him. You have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. Who that is God in heaven and earth shall do as you have done according to your might. And here begins the prayer. Moses' intense and impassioned prayer for himself. Please let me cross over and let me see that good land, the good land which is on the other side of the Jordan. Let me cross over to the opposite bank. That's what it is, Lavor. And let me see what is on the other side of the Jordan. Let me see that good land. No sooner had I said that than God was furious with me for your sakes. Every, every word here is puzzling. Vayit Aber Hashem be. God was furious, and you notice that the word Vayit Aber actually has in it the word Avar. Moses' prayer is, let me cross over. And God was almost transported with anger. Sense of, he went beyond himself with anger. And he wouldn't listen to me. That is, before reporting what God's answer is, Moses says, you know what God's response to my heartfelt prayer was? He absolutely refused to listen to me. It's not just, which I think means more than he didn't give me what I wanted. It means he absolutely blocked me. He didn't want me to go on speaking. And then Moses reports how God actually said that. Vayomer Hashem Eli, Ravlach. That's quite enough, God said to me. Al Tosef Daber Eli Od, Badavar Hazer. Don't go on talking to me anymore about this thing about this word, this idea. As if Moses has been harping on his desire to cross over, and God finally says to him, that's quite enough, not one more word about it. Whereas in fact, at least if we go according to the record in the Torah, Moses hasn't said a word about it up to now. God declared the edict, and Moses was perfectly silent about it, until the one moment when he tried to pray, and then God cut him short. And said, I don't want to hear one more word about this. Now, there's something so abrupt and so harsh about God's response. It's really hard to, hard to ignore. It plays on words here. God, Moses says, I want to cross over. And God, in a way, blocks his crossing and says to him, Ravlach, vayitaber, Ravlach, altosif daber elai od badavar hazeh. You can hear the plays on the words, the plays on the letters. God is basically using words to stop Moses using words. I don't want to hear one more word. Except, of course, that you have to notice that I don't want to hear you talking anymore to me. Don't speak to me anymore about this thing. And I think that's important. But, of course, the way that Moses first hears it is as a shocking repudiation. Here is God, who all the time has been telling Moses that he wants him to speak. He wants him to carry messages to the people and to Pharaoh. 
and with whom Moses' relationship all along has been rather straightforward. God and Moses have talked to each other with great ease all the way through the whole, the whole of the Torah. Messages, responses. And now at the very end of the story, God says to Moses, I don't want to hear one more word about this thing. And God then continues telling Moses, climb up to the top of this high mountain, lift up your eyes, west, north, south and east, and see with your eyes, ki lo ta'avor et for you will not cross over this Jordan. And there comes the actual force of God's refusal. It's not so much that you will not, you'll not live to, you'll not live in Eretz Israel. If you will not cross over. What Moses asked for is specifically to cross over, Ebra, without even a reference to the river at that point. Here God says, no, you will not cross over this river. And now go on and command, charge Joshua that he should be strong and of good courage. Because he will cross over in front of the people and he will give the people the inheritance of the land which you will just see from a distance. So that is God's answer to Moses. And it's an answer that dashes Moses' hopes absolutely. What makes it so very emphatic and really quite shocking in its totality? I want to say it's not so much that he won't make it into Eretz Israel. It's that he won't cross over. What he wanted to do was la'avor. And God says lo'ta'avor. And Joshua hu ya'avor. So the emphasis over and over again is on the idea of crossing. Why is that the central theme here? What is God doing to Moses at this moment by preventing him from making this movement across, this shift La'avor, from this side to that side, from over here to over there. Right? It's not just fording the river. It's going from one edge to another edge. From one side, ever is an, a side, an edge, ever is a wing, a, to fly over, to move over to something beyond. That's what Moses passionately wants. And God says, no more crossing over for you. No crossing over, only Joshua. He will cross over. What immediately follows this? What seems like um, something that doesn't, it doesn't seem like such an important moment. One moment, I seem to have lost my pages here. Yes. Moses spoke to God, saying, and what follows is, I, 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 I'm sorry, I understand now what, 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 what happened. Okay. Um, quite, before we get to that, what, one, one, one question about timing here. The timing of Moses' prayer. When did he pray to God? Moses says, at that time. What time? So there is a general tendency in the Midrash, which Rashi quotes, to time it. Moses' prayer, which we never hear in real time. We will never hear an objective report of Moses' prayer. We only hear it through his report to the people. When did it happen? Perhaps it happened, interesting idea, at the end of Sefer Bamidbar, the end of the book of Numbers, immediately after the story of the daughters of Tzlofchad. You remember the five sisters 
who come appealing for a share in their father's inheritance in the land since there are no brothers, since there are no male heirs. And you remember that they gain their point. And they gain their point, obviously, rather surprisingly, against the odds. Because after all, it's an assumption that male heirs inherit, that, that inheritance is a male issue. How is it that these five women manage to gain their point? They are paid an extraordinary compliment by God. God says, not just, yes, they can have what they want, but what he says is, Ken bnot slofchad dovrot. The daughters of Slofchad speak rightly. Ken is an interesting word to translate. Rashi translates it, Ya'eh, Ya'feh, Ya'ut. They speak beautifully. There is a certain beauty and fitness about the way they speak. Because of that, they will gain their, their, their claim. What will happen, in fact? And here again, the expression to cross over is used. God says, You shall transfer the property of the father to the daughters in such a case. Not only in their case, but in all cases where there are no male heirs, then the daughters will inherit. And the word that's used there for transmit is the same word, to cross over, as if there's a kind of transgressive movement here. We're moving here away from what is expected, what is right here, what is accessible, to something else, another possibility. According to the Midrash, according to Rashi, when Moses hears God's judgment in the case of Benot Slochad, he thinks, now is the time for me to ask for what I need. As if Moses senses that this is a moment when God is open, perhaps, to listening to right, things that might cross boundaries, that might move into areas that have not so far been, been uh, approved. And so that's the moment he chooses to make his prayer in. The prayer is not recorded in Sefer, in Sefer Bamidbar at that point. What is recorded is God's answer, according to this reading. What is recorded there is God saying to Moses, Climb up to this mountain of transits. Again, that expression, this mountain from which you will look out on all sides and look around and see the land, but you will not cross over. Now, according to this Midrashic tradition, the very moment that Moses chooses to make that prayer, is not made explicit in the, in the narrative in the Torah. Or all we're told in the Torah is God's refusal. God's refusal under the mode of climb up the mountain and see. Again, right? there's two occasions. That must have been the moment. That must have been the moment. And that moment is, as it were, censored because God doesn't listen to it. Because God, God doesn't listen to it. So we don't actually hear the prayer in real time. Why then does Moses tell the people about this most painful experience of being rejected, of being repudiated in this really quite humiliating way, very harsh way, when in fact the people might need never have known about it? What is he trying to communicate to them by telling them this frustrating story? Uh, I suppose if someone I cared for and respected a great deal had refused to listen to me, 
and had told me basically I don't want to hear one more word, I don't know if I would rush to tell everybody about it. What does Moses have to gain? What is, is he trying to teach the people something, as we like to say? I think it's very hard to see any lesson that one can, one can learn from this kind, of, this kind of story. If the lesson is, don't despair, keep davening till the very last minute, then it's not exactly a lesson that, uh, that is very well transmitted by, by, by what happens. Moses is not, is not attended to at all. So what is the purpose of telling the people this story? What happens in the account there in Sefer Mabinthar is that immediately after God has dashed Moses' hopes in this final way, Moses then turns to God, and that's where the Torah says, Vayidaber Moshe el Hashem lemor. And Moses spoke to God, saying, charge Joshua, um, to charge, charge uh, someone else, another leader to come and take effective control of the people. Um, that expression, Vayidaber Moshe el Hashem, it may not ring any bells, but perhaps it should. The bell it should be ringing is the bell of unique occurrence. There is no other place in the whole Torah where we read Vayidaber Moshe el Hashem that Moses spoke to God. There's plenty, of course, much incidence of Vayomer Moshe el Hashem that Moses says to God various things. But Dibur is an expression of force and authority, of impact. That's not the way a human being in general talks to God, one might assume, but Dibur. And it's certainly not the way Moses ever talked to God before. But at this moment of all moments, when he's lost all hope of his personal desire, when God has spoken to him in this very harsh way, it's as if Moses is suddenly possessed of great strength and great force, and he talks to God with unprecedented authority. And so the Midrash points this out and says something like this. Sadikim kishenifterim min haolam, when the righteous leave the world, in ozvin etzorchehem, vooskim betzorche sibor. They abandon, they sublimate their own interests and they invest themselves, their energy, in the needs of society. Kol hamavakesh tzorche sibor, ki'ilu ba bizroa. Wonderful expression. Anyone who does that, anyone who interests himself passionately in the needs of the world, in the needs of society, it's as if he came with a strong arm. It's as if that gives him enormous strength, it lends him strength that he may not have realized in himself before that. Once he begins to invest himself in that profound way in the needs of others, then something happens to him. And I want to say... This is a very significant moment. It's a moment in which Moses discovers new strength in talking to God. But more importantly, and this is my main story for this evening, they're connected. He also discovers a completely different way of talking to the people. That's why he tells this story to the people. It represents a different way of talking altogether. And that's the story I want to investigate this evening. Notice, Moses says, let me cross over. Please let me cross over. E'ebrana. It's not the only time he says that. He says it, for instance, when he's passing through the lands of Transjordan. Sihon and Og, coming up against the kings. 
in Transjordan, he will ask, let me pass through your land. And he'll use the same expression, e'ebrana. It becomes almost a kind of motif, as if this is an expression that comes naturally to Moses' lips, to cross through, to go through. Sichon actually refuses to, to let him go through, in that meaning of the word. Then God refuses to let him go over, to let him make that transit, that, that transition. I believe the transit of Venus is happening sometime soon. We're thinking of transits and transitions. That is somewhere, something is, is important in Moses' imagination, and it keeps on coming up. Contrast this. I think it's a very vivid contrast with the story of the two and a half tribes. You remember, that's the next story afterwards in, in Sefer Bamidbar. The, the tribe of Reuven, sorry, Reuven, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh come and say to Moses, we have just conquered these lands in Transjordan, and we have, our tribes have, a lot of mikneh. We have livestock, we have cattle. And this is excellent grazing ground for cattle, the land we've just conquered. Al-Ta'avirenu, please don't cross us over the Jordan. And they appeal with great passion to Moses. Don't make us cross over to the other side of the Jordan. We want to stay right here. Because we have mikneh, and mikneh need good ground. In other words, mikneh is what you hold in the hand. It's a bird in the hand. We have no interest in flying. We want to be right here where the ground is good. It's for the sake of our mikneh and for the sake of our wives and little children, in that order. It's clear, Rashi points out, that the, the mikneh is obviously much more important to them than their, than their wives and children. They, use the, they, they refer to mikneh six times in the course of their speech. They begin and end the closing speech with the word mikneh. And Moses' reaction, as you remember, is great anger. What we usually say is, that he is very angry because perhaps he misunderstands them. He thinks they mean that they don't want to lend their arms to the general war across the Jordan. They just want to stay here with the land that has already been conquered and withdraw from the rest of the people. And that Moses is angry for that reason. I want to make another suggestion. I want to say that I think Moses is so angry because he is the one who so much wants to cross over and they can cross over, and they say with an equal passion, please don't make us cross over. As if there is in them a kind of allergy, almost an, aller an allergic reaction to the idea of ha'avara, to the idea of going to the other side. It's not just a matter of accompanying the, the armies, and it's not a technical movement to ford the river. Al-ta'avirenu. And Moses understands that that is the position, theirs is the position that got the people stuck in the desert for 40 years. That there was a, a, a reluctance to make that move. Then it was called Aliyah in the story of the spies, to go up into the land. But the language has changed now. It's no longer called going up, it's called crossing over. That's the word that's used over and over again. Uh, that interlinguistic pun, over and avar um, is completely, of course, without any basis. <laughs> there's, no, there's, no, there's no semantic basis to it, I assume, but I can't, I can't resist it. Now, that movement of overing, of, of, going, of going, to, going to the other side, 
what does it suggest? What, what are we supposed What are we supposed to understand by 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 this? What I'd like to do with you now is to listen to the tone of Moses as he says to the people over and over again. I'm sorry. As he says, as he says to the people repeatedly, "Atem ovrim ani lo over." I'm dying here. Let me read just one example of this. He says to the people, chapter 4, towards the end, I am dying in this land. I am not crossing over the Jordan. You are crossing over the Jordan, and you will inherit that good land. Now, the emphasis on crossing, it would be sufficient to say, I'm dying here, and you are going to inherit the land. Right? That, would, that would make the point quite sufficiently. The emphasis, I'm not crossing over, you are crossing over. And that's not the only time he speaks to the people like this. What is he trying to tell them? Surely, you know, in terms of facts, the facts are clear. Everyone knows that he is not going to grow with them into the land. That has become absolutely clear. So why does he keep on putting it that way? Is he trying, actually? Is there a rhetorical appeal of some kind? Is he asking them for something? And that's a question that arises in the Midrashic traditions. And I want to have a look at it now, starting from the end of the historical uh, sequence. Uh, if you have a look at number four on your page, uh, this is the Mea Shiloach. This is a modern 19th century Hasidic commentary on the Torah. On the words that Moses speaks to the people at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, I said to you at that time, Moses said to the people, I can't carry you alone. I can't lead you by myself. So appoint for yourselves people who are wise and understanding and, and famous, renowned, who will help me judge you, who will, who will be a kind of auxiliary force for me. I can't do it by myself. And that's the way that the book of Deuteronomy begins, with Moses remembering for the people how he said this to them. The obvious meaning of Moses' speech was, and we're going to be dealing now in obvious meanings and in hidden meanings, in meanings that are not so obvious. The obvious meaning is Moses is asking for help. He's saying, I need more people to help me in this onerous job of leading you. So appoint people who are chachamim, nevonim, v'yiduim. And our Hasidic writer here says, but there was something else going on here. As there always is something else going on, when anyone talks to anyone, I would say. As general as that. There is always many layers that are, that are going on. What is he actually saying to them? And this is the way that the Meir puts it. Moses felt that the will of God, Ritzon Hashem, the wish of God, is, was that Joshua would lead the people into the land. But Moses also has a wish. And his wish is that the people should wish, notice this play of desire, that the people should wish that he alone leads them into the land. That is, the one thing that Moshe wants, perhaps more than he wants to go into the land, is that the people should want him to be the only leader who takes them into the land. 
He can't ask them to pray for him. But he knows if they did pray for him, maybe it would help. Maybe God would indeed listen. But the interesting thing is, of course, that he can't say to them, I want you to want me. Right? That's, the, that's the main point here. You can, that's the problem with desire. If you want someone to, to desire you, you can't say to them, and that's a, a, sure, a sure killer, right? You, you can't say to them, want me. Somehow you have to say it without saying it. Well, I, I notice that political leaders now are not too shy about, about actually saying it, I mean, blatantly. But uh, anyone who is, you know, has the sensibilities of a Moses is not going to say that to the people. I want you to want me absolutely. For obvious reasons. So all he can say to them is, I can't do it alone. I can't lead you alone. Meaning, if you want me to lead you, you're going to have to help. You are going to have to pray to God so that perhaps you will achieve your, your wish. What happens, and here is the irony, after this he hints to them, he wanted them to understand that he needs their prayers now. And what happens indeed, they did not understand. And they said, yeah, that's just fine. That's great, your idea of appointing auxiliary leaders. We are absolutely uh, in accord with you. In other words, they totally miss the point. Now, this kind of dramatic reading, which implies that there are various ambiguities at work, that Moses means one thing, even though he seems to be saying something much more banal. Where did Mershilach get this from? At first you read this and you think this is a really modern uh, Freudian reading of the text. Mershilach lived at the same time as Freud. Perhaps these are ideas that were in the air at that time. And then you realize, you do a little research, and you realize that these ideas go back to the Midrash and they are found in more than one Midrashic source. It, it gives us exactly this sense of Moses appealing to the people, pray for me, implicitly, pray for me, and the people not getting it. For instance, have a look at the Midrash in number five on your page now. Uh, incidentally, before I move away from this Hasidic source, it's a very fine textual reading here. Uh, the Midrash already says that the people who are appointed to help judge and lead the Israelites are described as Chachamim and Yiduin. But the word Nevonim is not used. And Midrash has Moses say, I didn't find any understanding people. I only found, you know, there were clever people, there were famous people, but there was no one who has that power of Bina, of Tzvuna. And the way the Midrash is usually understood, it refers to public matters. There's no one who has that particular quality in public affairs. Our Hasidic writer says we're talking also about the private issues of, Mo of Moses, and that he didn't find anyone who understood the implications of his appeal to them. And here we come now to one of the original sources from which our Hasidic writer is drawing. And here we have the expression that we are interested in. When time came to cross the Jordan, Moses reminded them of how often he had defended them. He had acted as defense counsel for them when they were in trouble. And now he expected, Savul, he thought, he expected that they would ask for mercy for him 
that he should enter the land with them. How did he appeal to them? He said to them, Ata over, ani lo over. He said that more than once. You are crossing, I'm not crossing. Yes? Dot, 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 dot. <laughs> you know? Can you, can you hear that? Can you hear what I'm saying to you? As if he's appealing to them, he's saying to them, I helped you, are you going to help me now? And the sense somewhere of savour. It wasn't a wild hope, it was actually, it felt to him, like a very reasonable hope, that they would actually respond in the way he expected. He couldn't say it explicitly, but he hinted that they should ask for mercy for him. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand. And that's the way their problem is described on each occasion. They didn't understand. What is lahavin? The classic expression, lahavin davar mitoch davar. To understand something that's hidden inside something else. That's not there on the surface. What implicitly is there waiting to be unfolded? Do you have ears for that? And the people don't have ears for that. They may be very clever, but they don't have ears for that particular talent, for that particular perception. What, uh, what the Midrash continues with here is a rather painful, a really, a really poignant uh, mashal, a parable. This is like a queen who displeased her husband and he wanted to divorce her and marry someone else. He calls her and he says to her, have you heard that I'm going to marry someone else? And she says, yes. Uh, may I know the lady's name? And he says, yes. He tells, him, tells her the name. What does the queen then do? She gathers all her many children around her. And she says to them, have you heard that your father is going to marry another, another, another woman? And they say, yes. And she says, can you put up with having a stepmother? Something like that, yes. Meaning, she doesn't exactly want to describe the atrocities that a, that a stepmother might, might commit to them, because that really wouldn't be fair. She'd be undermining her husband. So she just puts it in a, rather, in a rather general way. Sure that they'll pick up the hint. Can you put up with having a stepmother? And they say, yes. <laughs> they say they're perfectly up for it. They don't have any problem with it. And then she says to them, she tries to explain a little more what, what it will mean to have a stepmother and they still don't get it and in the end she says you know what, I'm no longer worried for me I, I now worry for you how are you going to get on with your father when there isn't me when I won't be around to stand between you in other words, this triangle that there is at the moment has really been very helpful for you that I've been able to stand between you and your father but when there isn't that, when the king and the prince, you know, the king, the king and his son all, are always daggers drawn in the Midrash, the sense of furies abated. It, once, once you are facing each other, you, you'd better watch out. You'd better be, be cautious with God. Now, that's the mashal that the Midrash tells here. And it's a, it's a painful mashal. Because the people with the best will in the world, apparently, are unable to understand what Moses is warning them of. 
the children are unable to understand what it will be like when their mother is no longer around. Perhaps they think, well, it'll be rather nice to have a new pretty, pretty young mother. You know, maybe it'll be rather fun. They don't begin to get what it means to have their mother no longer there. She will not be there and the situation will be totally changed. Uh, I always have a rather painful personal reminiscence of this kind of thing. Uh, when I was a child, my mother was, uh, was going to have an operation at one point, and she was quite nervous about it, and she thought I was equally nervous. Uh, she was going out that evening, and she asked if I would like to come with her to some social engagement, um, an adult evening, and I said no. Now, obviously, if she asked me, it was because she hoped, she thought, that I was worried for her, that I would want to be with her, Right? There are things she couldn't say, but she just assumed. And I, with the terrible obtuseness of, I don't know, if I can call it childhood or just being me, um, I, just, I, just didn't, I just didn't get it. And I think back to it now with some pain. That is, when you realize how you were not listening, when you realize the lack of imagination of that moment, that you couldn't really imagine what this moment, what this, what this operation meant in my mother. Of course, there are all kinds of good reasons why children don't get it. Children don't understand these things. That's the way, that's the way we're made. But still, the sense here, therefore, of a kind of closed exit. How are the people going to get what they don't get? If you have a look at the next source, You'll see how this moves on one more stage. The dynamic between Moses and the people. One of his last speeches to the, to the people, chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. Moses says to them, God has not given you a heart to know to, to no field, eyes to see, ears to hear, until this day. Now that's a pretty scathing summary of the people's insensibility. That somewhere all along they have been singularly obtuse. They've, somehow they've been blocked to God, they've been blocked to the kind of spiritual depth that Moses might have expected of them. It's a really rather harsh summary of, of these 40 years. Our Midrash comes and adds another layer to this and says, here is Moses again, talking about his own appeal to the people and the fact that the people couldn't hear him. That they weren't capable of hearing what he asked of them. And we finally come up with the idea that Moses asked for only two things of God that involved God changing his, 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 his decision. One was when the people sinned with the golden calf and was about to destroy the people. Then Moses said, Forgive the sin of this people. And God said, Yes, I forgive because you spoke, you asked for it, as you asked for it. I respond to your speech. And then when it came to Moses' request, Ebrana, let me cross over to the other side of the Jordan. And God said, Lota Avor, you shall not cross over. And Moses says, let me cross over. And God says to him, you can't hold the rope at both ends. A strange image 
God says, if you want to gain your point about the people being forgiven, then you can't also plead for yourself. Either yourself or the people. I'm not sure why that is. Perhaps it will become a little clearer. Why can't he have both? Why can't he have what he wants and what the people need? Be that as it may, Moses' answer is heroic. Moses' answer is better that Moses and a hundred like him should die than that even a nail on their hands should be harmed. In other words, it's the people every time. And yet, at the end of the Midrash, you have this rather bitter statement. One man could redeem 600,000 when they were in trouble in the golden calf, but 600,000 couldn't redeem one when he needed their help. And so you have that kind of bitter observation at the end of the Midrash. I don't know if it comes exactly in the, in, in the, in the name of Moses. Perhaps it is actually in the name of Moses himself. As if he is fully aware of the irony of the, the, the asymmetry between himself and the people and the people's being unwilling to listen well enough to his need. And so Moses essentially, what is he doing in these Midrashic sources? Under the surface, he is mochiach them. He is rebuking them. It's tochacha. Somewhere there's an implicit reproach. I'm crossing, I'm not crossing, you're crossing, and you're not able, you're not able to hear. So I want to think, I think the time has come to think about crossing over. What is the deeper meaning of crossing over? What does it mean, la'avor? La'avor is used about time and about space. That which is past, that which has passed, the past tense. L'sha'avar. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the past as that which is gone, lapsed, done with, over. That is the sense of what is no longer here, what has disappeared. What is past in space, what has passed by, is also something that is no longer here. It's disappeared. If human life is described as cell or there, as a shadow that passes, a passing shadow, then that gives you exactly that sense of something flitting. Yes, the English word flitting. It means to over means to be here just for a second. To be here present, barely, you can barely register it. You are aware that it has passed. After it's gone, you know avar. In the Song of Songs, isn't that how the lovers relate to one another? Dodi chamak avar. My beloved slipped by past. Avar means he's not here anymore. Bikashtiv velomitsativ. I look for him, I don't find him. And so there is a kind of melancholy implication in the word avar, which has to do with the nature of desire, I want to say. It has to do with the desire we have to reach out for things, to cross over, to move out, to shift from where we are to something else. And then we find that we can't grasp whatever it is that we were reaching out for. If there was one thing that Moses wanted, that God gave him at least partially, but only partially, it was his desire to see God's glory at the top of Mount Sinai, you remember. 
What did God answer him? He answered him using the word avar many, many times. Over and over again. What did God answer him? Vayavor Hashem al panav. God said, Ani avir et kol tuvi al panecha. I will make all my goodness pass in front of your face. I'll put you into this crevice in the rock. Ad ovri. Until I have passed. And when I pass, how does it continue there? Ba'avor kvodi, when my glory passes by, sakoti kapi alecha, I will, sh- I will cover that crevice with my hand, and only after I've passed by, I will remove my hand, v'raita et achorai. And you will see, I've translated my back, which has always been a bit of an embarrassment. What is it to see God's back? Does God have a body? Uh, the Meashilach has a very, a very beautiful interpretation. He says, you will see my afterness. You will see the fact, it's a matter of time. You will see my pastness. You will see that I, ha- I was here, but I'm no longer here. You will see that a trace that's left by my, my having been. Now that melancholy sense, as if, lo that what people really want to see, they can't see while they live. That that desire is always in the end, whatever it gets, it is something of a vestige, something of a trace, a sense of a passage, that something was here, there was something that I reached out for here. I want to say that this is the movement, I want to use the Greek word, it's the movement of eros. It's the erotic movement. There's a wonderful book by Anne Carson, the Greek scholar and poet, called Eros in which she says that that movement of reaching out, the reaching out in love towards the other or towards knowledge and exposure to, to Eros, that, that has to do... Uh, that has to do with being a war of a meaning that is inseparable from its absence. It's reaching out to something that the minute you grasp it, in a sense, you no longer have it, and you have to keep reaching further. Uh, Aristotle said, all men by their nature reach out to know. That is the basic desire of human beings. They reach out to know what they don't yet know, not what they already know. And once you have grasped what you don't or yet know, then you must, by your very nature, by the nature of humanity, want to reach further. And that continually extending reach is not bad news but there is of course a melancholy aspect to it it's a, 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 what is desired in fact is desire itself as you find in Kabbalah the desire to desire not to have the thing actually but actually to be always in that posture of going, trying to cross over of trying to move to another, to another realm l'amour de loin the troubadours called it the love of that which is far, which is on the other edge, on the, on the, other, on the other side. The two and a half tribes don't have, um, don't have an erotic bone in their bodies, <laughs> if I can put it like that. The two and a half tribes say, Alta avirenu, no crossings for us. We are very happy with our livestock here on this good solid ground here. <laughs> Moses says, and will, will continue to say, Eebrana. Let me cross over. Let me go over, go over there. And God says, stop talking to me about this thing. 
I think one way in which we talk about this reaching out is through metaphor. When we use metaphors, we are carrying meaning across. We're trying somewhere to shift from what is real to what is possible. And we're trying to move from one to the other. And we use metaphors to make that play between the real and the possible. My love is like a red, red rose. Yes, since when is a woman a rose? A woman is not a rose. But we're trying to grasp something, to explain something about our desire when we use metaphors which literally means to carry across, to carry to, uh, carry to the other side. This, what, what we're speaking about is what uh, the poet Sappho called bittersweet eros. Bittersweet eros. With its, right, its ambiguity. The sweetness, the love, and the sense of constant, of constant movement further. Um, let me read you a little passage from... Do I have too many pages here? Yes. A little passage from Italo Calvino's book, Mr. Palomar. Uh, this is a book of, of short essays, meditations, by this very thoughtful protagonist, Mr. Palomar. In the last chapter, he is about to die, and he is thinking about the advantages of being alive over being dead. He says, they are not as regards the future, where risks are always very great and benefits can be of short duration, but in the sense of the possibility of improving the form of one's own past. That's the advantage of living longer. A person's life consists of a collection of events, the last of which could also change the meaning of the whole. Not because it counts more than the previous ones, but because once they are included in a life, events are arranged in an order that corresponds to an inner architecture. A person, for example, reads in adulthood a book that is important for him. After he has read that book, his life becomes the life of a, of a person who has read that book. And it is of little importance whether he read it early or late, because now his life before that reading also assumes a form shaped by that reading. I'll say it more simply perhaps. You read the book now, you think, why, what a pity I didn't read it when I was younger. It could have changed my life. And of course there is a certain meaning to that. But maybe not, he says. Look at it this way. Whenever you read the book, it changes your whole life from bef before and after. It changes the, your whole way of reading your life. Everything shifts. A book has that erotic effect. To put, put everything in slightly different uh, uh, relationship with each other and therefore for Moses to live longer to cross over one more one more passage would mean to be able to have one more chance to see his whole past differently as things are things are now for him fairly set you will cross over you will leave me behind I will disappear for you right? I, will, I will move into into your blind spot. You won't see me anymore. I don't leave anyone else behind. I am here now and there is no more possible movement for me. What I most desire, I now end with the consciousness that I will not cross over. Um, I gave this talk a title that came from, that came from uh, 
one of Kafka's diaries, one of a passage in Kafka's diaries. The passage goes like this. He writes about Moses. He is on the track of Canaan all his life. It is incredible that he should see the land only when on the verge of death. The dying vision of it can only be intended to illustrate how incomplete a moment is human life. Incomplete because a life like this could last forever and still be nothing but a moment. Moses fails to enter Canaan not because his life is too short, but because it is a human life. That is, Moses' life is not cut short at this point. Moses' life is and always was a life of desire. A life of desire which God at a certain point turns around on Moses and says to him, you will not cross over to the land of Canaan. And I want to say that what God is saying to Moses in telling him this so harshly is it's time for you now to begin to use metaphors. It's time for you no longer to be stuck on, yeah, to be completely compulsive about the concrete satisfaction of desire that you want to get there and rather to begin to think of other kinds of crossings, of metaphorical crossings. And I want to suggest that that's indeed what happens at the end of Moses' life. And this is the last suggestion, complex suggestion that I want to make. What does Moses do once he realizes that God has absolutely said no about the concrete realization of his desire? And in that way has driven Moses back onto his full humanity and has said, now you really are a human being. Moses realizes at that point that there is an extremely important passage that he can now set up as the object of his desire. And this is the passage to his people. It's the passage of beginning to learn how to speak to his people from himself, from his own being, so that perhaps something creative and productive can be left of these last speeches that goes beyond okay, not only, of course, the content, the content of laws, some of which the people know already, some of which they don't know, but it has to do with an appeal to the people to become more than what they are. An appeal to the people to learn, I would say, to learn to understand, to learn to listen differently not just to read the text, but to read the text in the mode of what we now call Torah Shabal in the mode of the oral law, that is, to hear the text, to hear the voice of Moses speaking. So that what Moses begins to do at this last period of his life, and it begins with Deuteronomy, with the beginning of Deuteronomy, and particularly this very personal speech um, of, about his rejection by God, what he begins to do I think in its fullest sense, is to become Moshe Rabbeinu. To become the teacher. The teacher as such. Edu the educator. The educator who is there not just to transmit content, but who is there actually to have the people confront the deepest truths about themselves. And confront their task for all the future. To begin to think in, 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 in larger terms. If they don't do this, as Moses says to them over and over again, the future doesn't look good. He says to them over and over again, 
even while I was with you, you were you were being rebelling, you know, mightily. What's going to happen when I'm no longer with you? Uh, this really the prospects are not good. So Moses is now facing the challenge of leaving something of his words with them in such a way as to transform them. And that's the problem of education. Uh, Freud said that education is the impossible profession. The impossible profession. Well, what's so impossible about it? Uh, he actually thought that there were two other impossible professions, uh, healing and government, which more or less covers the whole, the whole range. That is, anything that's worth doing in the world is impossible, which is more or less what I'm saying. Um, what, what is so hard about education? What is it that Moses would so much like to be able to do at this, at this moment in his life? I think the reason that education is impossible is because people, in spite of the fact that Aristotle thinks that they reach out to know, that there is a desire to know, people at the same time have a passion for ignorance. <laughs> that people are very deeply invested in not knowing more than they already know. And what they already know sometimes constitutes a really magnificent ignorance. <laughs> that is, what they don't know is just so egregious that it's too painful to confront. One ca I can't actually confront how much I don't understand. And therefore, when someone tries in some way to educate me profoundly, then I resist. Right? The word is resistance. And of course, resistance for Freud is a key word. That's what it's all about. That you try to change people, and people just, well, they just won't have it. And from their ways of resistance, perhaps they, or, or the analyst, can begin to understand their ways of being in the world and possibly their ways of transcending their ignorance. But without acknowledging the resistance and the ignorance, what I'm calling the passion to ignore, right? it's not just ignorance, it's the passion not to know, especially when I'm implicated, especially when it's a knowledge that threatens to change me, that asks me to be different. That I would really, I would really rather do anything than, than, than get to that. How is Moses going to get to them? How is he going to cross over, to come across to them in such a way as to make them begin to get a glimmer of their own ignorance? The suggestion I want to make is one that's uh, it's, it's, it's actually made by the French uh, philosopher, um, essayist, uh, Roland Barthes, who says that the analyzand, the patient, in analysis, who speaks and speaks and speaks endlessly to a doctor, to an analyst, who is supposed to understand all about him, but who in fact knows nothing about him, except for what he hears the patient telling about himself. That is, the analyst gets all his knowledge from listening to the endless talk of the patient, who doesn't understand what he himself is saying. The patient is talking and talking but doesn't really get what he actually knows. Right? Can't actually remember, or won't remember, what he actually knows. So hopefully the, uh, the, the, the analyst can help the patient then to become aware of what he himself has said. This is like, Bart says, this is a surprising analogy, this is like the teacher teaching a class. 
the teacher talks and talks and talks, uh, you know, for approximately an hour and a half, um, and everyone else sits and listens. And what everyone is listening to is the teacher struggling with his own ignorance, struggling to get beyond a certain point of blockage and to get at something that he doesn't yet know, get at something that will be important to say. And that process is a difficult process. The teacher is going through and the student in a sense understands more than the teacher understands. The student can see what is evolving here in a way that the teacher may not be fully aware of. Now, I want to, to make use of that idea, strange as it is, and to say that is what Moshe Rabbeinu is doing with the people in at least some of these speeches. Certainly in that crucial one that we're interested in. Why does he tell the people about his rejection, about his repudiation by God? If not in some way to stage for them a certain process that he's going through. It's a process of frustration and anger and grievance. He is obviously disappointed that God doesn't give him his desire. He's disappointed in the people. He has a grievance against them. There's a bitterness against them. All this material that the Midrash had been gathering up, in some way saying, you have to understand, there was much more in these speeches than just the content of laws. These are Moses' speeches, and they come out of the life of a person who couldn't speak. That, that's, how they, that's where they began. So that there's much more involved here, and what the people are doing is listening to this and trying to learn from the unconscious learning of their teacher. That is, they're trying to understand how is it then that one moves from not knowing, from refusing to know, to a position of greater knowing, of, 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 of bina, of, of tzvuna. Does does Moses achieve his end? What would his end then be? His end would be, I suppose, that in the future, people will read the words of the Torah, the descendants of the descendants of the descendants, Banecha of Nevanecha, will read the words of the Torah. They themselves will not have heard Moses personally speak, but they will read the words of the Torah listening to Moses' voice. That is not only for the obvious overt meanings, but for the multiple meanings that are there, that the Midrash picks out, picks out the various musical lines of, of, of meaning. And they will listen and they will ask themselves, so what did Moses really mean when he said such and such? And what has been said up to now will not be enough. What everyone has said Moses meant will not be sufficient and there will always be the challenge but what else did Moses mean? What can I hear him as meaning? And that continuing eternal process of Torah Shabbat, that's what Moses is hoping somewhere to initiate with the people. Does he achieve it? Is there any evidence that at the end of Sefer Dvarim, he feels he can leave the scene with some sense of satisfaction? I think there is a clue that there is at least a whisper of change. That scathing description of the people that we read before. God has not given you a heart to know and eyes to see and ears to hear. Ad hayom hazeh. 
until this day. What does that mean? Does that mean including today? You are, you are completely impermeable? You know, to this very day I haven't been able to get through to you? Or does it mean up to this day? Yes. Today, I think you're beginning to get it. Today, how does Rashi put it very beautifully? It's really extraordinary in terms of what we've been saying. He said, Moses says, Atahivanti. Now I have understood that really you do have a passion for God. That really you are capable of some kind of real longing, of some kind of desire to cross over, some desire to, 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 to know more than you, than, than, you already, than you already know. Have a look at one final source, number seven. Where does all this leave Moses and the people? Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher, hinted to Israel, only hinted, at the end of 40 years, that they are ungrateful. That they didn't, they, they didn't respond the way they should have responded. What was the hint? I led you for 40 years through the desert and God didn't give you a heart to know and so forth. So Rabbah then says, you can learn from this, that sometimes it takes a student 40 years to get to understand what his teacher was teaching. So there you have it now. It takes 40 years. It took Moses 40 years to get through to his people. I want to say he got through not just by dint of 40 years repetition, but because of that last, that last thrust of language, that way of speaking at the end. But the general idea here is very powerful. You can learn from your teacher and you can be not lacking in intelligence by any means and still not get it until one day, many years later, you suddenly think back and you think, ah, now I understand what he, she was trying to say. And that applies not only to teachers, of course, it applies to any communication, any attempt for one person to speak to another person. That somewhere there are possibilities then of blindnesses breaking through, blindnesses being broken through. There are possibilities of obtuseness reaching beyond itself and somewhere that can be a desire that finally does break into some kind of understanding. And perhaps also, if I take that Rashi seriously, Rashi is implying that sometimes it can be true for the teacher as well. That it can take 40 years for a teacher perhaps to have sufficient faith in the student. After all, Rashi puts it, Atahivanti. Moses says, now I got it. Now, I, using that word, Bina. Now I understand, finally, that the people really are capable of, of approaching God, of moving, of that shifting of their, of their being towards, towards God. Clearly, what's being described here is some kind of reciprocal movement. The people have moved, and Moses has moved in his appreciation of the people, and Moses is perhaps able to leave this world with a sense, at least, of movement. That there has been a shifting of some kind. I want to finish with, again, with the dark, a darkness, a bittersweet. There's a darkness which is light. What are the very last words? I don't think it would be fair or honest not to quote them. The very last words that God speaks to Moses in this lifetime. 
He shows Moses as he had promised the land from afar. He shows it to him and he looks. And then God says to him, I've shown it to you with your eyes. But there you shall not cross over. When I read that, while I was thinking about these things, my heart sank. I thought, really? Is that, is that the last word that God has for Moses? Shama lota avor? No, absolutely not. But of course, what God is saying here again is very precise. He's saying, Shama lota avor. A great emphasis on there. That thereness, the land, you will not pass over to. As if God is implying to Moses, there have been other passages. There have been other more metaphorical passages that you have managed to cross over, that you have managed somewhere to affect your people by bringing to them a new kind of language. It's a language, it's a language in which, in a sense, you exposed yourself. For the first time, something personal came through in your language, and that's the powerful, that's, that's the powerful moment, that's the powerful crossing. Here you have managed to pass over. So Shama Lotavor, I think, contains in itself, in a very concentrated way, God's last speech to Moses, contains both the melancholy and the prevailing desire of the story that we've been telling. In the end, it's the desire that constitutes the human life and it makes that human life one that can stand for all eternity. Thank you. Just remain seated for a moment if you'd be